Out and out from the tenth chapter of the book of Matthew. From the tenth chapter of the book of Matthew. Just one verse. And the message tonight, I could take a, take the text from a thousand verses, so I took this one. And I'm not going to try to break up the verse. I just get my subject from it and then depart from it. Maybe never get that clear. <clears throat> the Lord says in Matthew 10, 28, Fear not them which, are, which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Someone has told us, and I think rightly, that the generation once removed from us would be called a skeptical generation. Say to the people, anything you want to say, and they say, prove it. We're from Missouri, prove it. They have a hard time proving anything that worth believing. And of course, the great things of time and eternity can be believed and experienced, but not proved. This generation which we live, that's the description you could give out of it. It's a cynical generation. Tell people something now and they'll say, what of it? What of it? Those of Israel, what of it? It make much difference whether the world flat around, what of it? Along in this sentence with this cynical generation, where you're square if you believe in your country, the church, or the Bible, and yet you're a prayer. It's the deepest generation where <coughs> we don't believe anything. What of it? Those who are heaven, what of it? That's just your opinion. What of it? What difference does it make? Those who are hell, what of it? That's your opinion. Mine's as good as yours. What of it? Along with that sort of an attitude, it is somewhat frightening for the people of God to face the fact that the two pastors growing religious doctrines in all the world today, the first, that man is too important to be destroyed and ruined and sent to hell. This is preeminently the day of the emergence of the individual. And the men we are told on from the newspaper and the radio and the television and the schools and churches and everywhere what a valuable piece of furniture a human being is. Too valuable to be destroyed. Therefore, there's no hell. And then the second 
doctrine that's growing by leaps and bounds, and it grows not only in liberal circles, but in dead fundamental circles, and by attitudes. And the theologians now seized upon a great Bible term, the sovereignty of God. And suddenly they the quit fighting the truth that God is powerful, and God is utterly sovereign, and God's will must take place, and he's doing as he pleases in the earth and in the heaven. Now they're using that to say that God is so all-powerful. He is so powerful. He is so mighty that no little one, one little creature of his, or a combination or association of his creatures joined together could possibly defeat the all-powerful God. And so now, <clears throat> they're preaching the sovereignty of God. He's so mighty, he's so powerful, he's so answerable only to himself that none can withstand him. And that this all-powerful God will not be defeated by any creature, thus all men will be saved. Those are the two fast-growing doctrines. It is interesting for us to face the fact that sometimes we shoot all of our ammunition against doctrines that are not vitally the issues of the hour in which we face, but these are. These are, these falsehoods have become the doctrine of demons and the belief of this generation. And they are vital issues that if we want it to have a message, the same message, but have it for the day in which we live and quit fighting battles that are a thousand years old and we can't get anybody interested in them now, because that was way back yonder. But the other two things that are in the mind of the people of this hour. Man is so valuable. He is so important. Every movement of the last hundred years has been toward the emancipation of the individual, freedom of the individual. Man is so powerful that it's just downright silly to talk about the annihilation, spiritually speaking, the destruction in Bible language, the ruin throughout eternity of so valuable a piece of property as a human being. People believe that now. And God is so powerful. God is so omnipotent. But the idea that a little bit of person could defeat him is downright silly. And thus, we understand the fastest growing teaching religious wise in the world today is that when the wind of time has come, all men will have been saved. And that sort of a generation which is not Skeptical, nobody cares whether you prove anything or not. If you carry proof or not, they just say, so what? And in a generation where these two awful perversions of Bible truth are sweeping the depths 
everywhere. I wanted tonight, instead of preaching the sermon, to let the awful, awful, awful place called hell come to the pulpit and bring you its message. What does the awful fact of intensity of terribleness of hell have to say to anybody who listens? I would not seek to prove there is a hell. I would not dare to tell you that I can take the Bible and explain much about hell. I can prove some things about it from the Bible and others I can't. I have heard preachers who could take the Bible and prove there's little fire in hell. I have other heard other preachers take the Bible and prove there wasn't. Both of them use the Bible. I don't know. But I know that hell has a message for you if you listen to it. And the best I know how tonight, I want to let hell say three things. It's in the Bible. There's something about eternal destruction in the Bible. There's something about the fires of hell in the Bible. There's something about a fire that's not quenched in the Bible. The Bible talks about a worm that dies now. The Bible talks about eternal and gross sight. Do with those terms what you will. There's something terrible outcome in the future. Take all those terms literally. That's bad enough. Take them spiritually. That means the literal terms are just a feeble attempt to use the language of men to describe something ten billion times worse. God said, something terrible facing men and women who are destined under the providence of God to exist consciously somewhere as long as God lives. I wouldn't quibble about it. I tremble in my soul when I face it. I went away last night if there'd been a hole in the ground, I'd have pulled my step in it and pulled the top open. You may like to visit after service like that. I'm too crushed. My, just to get me sitting this of the awful condition people are in, and the whistling toward the road to hell would never so much as a suspicion of the condition they're in. And to actually believe that folks are in as bad a case as I preached last night, and where they are not, but I said so believe they are, and I think the Bible teaches. If that won't kill you, I'm sorry, of course. 
or to just to pick up the Bible and read about the terrible expressions that are found only in this book, but they are found in the book. And if you get to some scissors and cut them out, you've got a Bible that's just completely mutilated. And it throw away the Bible. Or it comes face to face. This generation has never done it. With a fact. With a burning fact. That men desperately need a savior. And the reason they desperately need a savior is because they're in desperate danger of a terrible fate. According to this book, I wish we believe. I don't believe we do. I don't believe I do. God help us, I don't believe we believe these things. I just don't believe we do. I think we wouldn't argue about it. I wish we believe. My soul, my soul, once again our churches would be turned into dreadful places and the awe the presence of these terrible realities would crush us until most of us would go out and tell Jeremiah sitting on that old burning stump, weeping his heart out about Jerusalem. And we'd say, move over, Jeremiah, and let us weep with you too. Hell says three things that people would listen Hell is a revelation of the character of God. There is nothing in the Bible that opens up the very heart of God, the very character of God, the thrice-holiness of His very nature quite so much as the awesomeness and the awfulness of eternal hell. Hell speaks to us of a God whose indignation will yet flame in mighty, mighty waves of heat and wrath against the breakers of this holy law. You want to get a picture of Almighty God's holy character? Immerse yourself in the awfulness of the despicable description of that place where men shall be confined throughout eternity, where it'll be characterized by everybody having everybody else in utter contempt. And everybody will hate everybody else. That's the picture of the character of God. What is the doctrine of hell? It is simply the unfolding of the character of God's law. 
And what is the character of God's law? It's just the unfolding of the character of Almighty God. There's nothing about ten rules to be much worried about, except as behind them stands the fight holy God. Except that they are the revelation of the perfectness of His holiness. The doctrine of hell is just simply the unfolding of the holy character of Almighty God. Some years since, you read about it in your papers, Mr. Adolf Eichmann was finally tracked down and arrested and smuggled out of the country and taken to Israel. The Jewish people, <clears throat> this man Eichmann, obeying Mr. Hitler's orders, had put six million Jews in furnaces and burned their bodies, gathered up their ashes and made soap out of their ashes to wash the bodies of the German soldiers. And long after many of us had forgotten the Second World War, the Jews who'd had their kinfolk burned alive by that monster hadn't forgotten. Finally they found him. You read about it. They smuggled him out and got him to Israel and tried him in the courts of Israel and sentenced him to the hand. A Christian man, some way or another, got permission of the Jewish Israelitish government and he got Mr. Eichmann's position, uh, permission until you read of it and he got in the cell a few hours before Mr. Eichmann was sent on his way and he gave him a Christian witness some of the Christian papers published it. did you read it? it was tremendous some of the conversations when something sort of like this, to make a long story short, that man sitting in his cell with the blood of all those people on his hands told this Christian worker that he was, had not the slightest, lightest fear in his heart, that he was perfectly willing to meet his God and that he did not need a mediator to stand between him and God. And he went out by way of the hangman's rope and they took his body and put it in the ground and it's already beginning to rot. But Mr. Eichmann, according to the Bible, his spirit went back to the God who gave it. And he's been in the hands of a God who gave a holy law to express his character and to outline his requirements. And Mr. Eichmann went out. Although he didn't know it at the time, he knows it now. He went out to face the most killing task 
the human being will ever be called upon the face. He went out alone to one day be summoned before the judgment bar of God and have to deal. Listen to me, have to deal with the clothes and the man of God eternal, just and good and holy and perfect law. He went out with nobody to mediate between him and the God of that holy law. I don't want to have to deal with God's law. I'm a God. You talk about what would you preach if you just had one thing to preach? I wouldn't preach on the doctrine of election or the doctrine of the church or the doctrine of nothing. If I could get out in the streets of heaven and stop traffic and make people listen to me, I would thank them, I would burn them, I would scream, I'd do everything I could to warn them of the terribleness of a little old human being. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity, back toward evil, lapping up sin like people drink water. And it'd be terrible to have to deal in your own sin with God. Holy it'll damn the best man that ever lived. It will. It'll damn you. If something hadn't taken place in your experience. Well, so the perfect righteousness and the perfect death of somebody else who was able
You can't do it. It'll kill you. It'll do you. It'll do you. Your most holy breath will not suffice. Along comes the Bible and says, Our righteousness is, or is meant to cross our in the sight of a holy God. Oh, young man, listen to me. I come in, I say, for God's sake, don't depend on the fact that you some bad things you don't, you don't do. For God's sake, don't depend on the fact you said you had a little experience. For God's sake, don't depend on your good intentions. For God's sake, don't depend on believing a few verses of Scripture. For God's sake, don't stop until you know you've been consciously joined in living abiding faith to Him who alone or you with the law in your stead, and you can't have the slightest interest in what he did on the cross, unless you bowed and utter surrender to him, and join thy faith to him. Hell reveals the character of God. He's a God Holy wrath and indignation against sin. He's a God who could find only one way to still be God and save any sinner out of here. He couldn't overlook the sinner's sin. And the only way he could find was to choose his only begotten son. I know I can't explain that, but God knows I can believe it. So take my place. That's the message of hell. It's the message of the, the revelation of the character of men. You won't find out what kind of animal you are. Soak your soul in what the Bible has to say about it. Hell says three things about me. It says, first of all, that I am a member of a race, and I'm one in particular of a race of people who have been made partakers of the Spirit. Of faith. I'm a partaker of the satanic spirit. Turn in your mind's memory back to Isaiah 14, 5 times. Satan says, I will. I will ascend into the heaven. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. That's sin. That's the sin of Satan. I'll be right to most high God. I, 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 I will. I will. I will. I will. 
I just gonna send you to hell, sister. Putting your big old wheel, you think it's awful big. And trying to take your little feeble wheel and beat down God's will so you can sit on the throne in God's world. What is the essence of sin? Simply live in God's world as if you were God, not He.
I don't necessarily mean out of that. I, I've known godly people, something wrong with their eyes, and they couldn't cry. But they can cry in here. Our doctrine, the generation we live in, and they don't think about it. One means what I believe. We ain't going to win them with that, I'll tell you that. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord's going to have to see the I'll find it in Paul Kirkman and the great Baptist congregation I've seen by tears. And I've heard that prayer. They somehow go together. Don't care now. Are you mad at me? Did you know you have to take an old handle or something and Bible says afflict yourself. You know? Bible says, break up the silent ground, you know. Ah, we say, Lord, give us a burden. It don't work that way. Break your own heart. God help us. God help us. And this young couple were after another couple, and finally were bribing them or something. They got them to honor God and come out to the meeting one night. And they got so fighting, sitting mad at me that night, they got up and stalked out of the church. And I don't know whether it's God or not, but my old blundering way, somewhere in the sermon I said, Left alone of God, let him take his restraining hand off us. Let him rob you of the sweet influences of the gospel. That influence the many people that still do this. Just leave you alone. And if you could get at God, you sit in peace and cushion and tranquil. Oh, that young couple got up and sat down. And when the service was over, that young Christian couple came to me, just tears flowing down the street. They began to bawl me out. Look what you did. We worked for weeks. And finally got him hell all night. Now you made a mad on us to praise the Lord. At least they found out this ain't something to straddle a fence about. This is this. And I said, won't you go home, lay off of me, and pray that God will stick that nice people in them. And when that night came, the phone rang, and the pastor answered it, and, pastor, and that couple said, Get on the phone and reach the evangelist and tell him the couple got saved and went home and they were so mad. They had to stop and think. I wish we get people so mad. What I'm preaching is, he's a troll and it's not. There are no in between. Oh, my soul. I wish we could take it seriously. We'd get a cut and try to kill God. Or well, begin to scream for mercy. You say, Brother Barnum, we are nice people. It's the influences that God surrounds you with from you, and your haters of God. And you kill him if you could get your hand We're partakers of a satanic gift. Well, there's a third thing about people with the teachers of the satanic faith. In Matthew 25, 41, 
the Lord Jesus is said to say, Depart from me, ye cursed, and the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I think that does not mean what a verdict preached to that uh, the Lord never intended anybody to go to hell. They took him by surprise, but he built hell for the devil and his angels. And then man said, the Lord had to rearrange it. Know what that means is? That you ought to be punished just exactly like Satan. The hell's been prepared, and you've gone to endure the same fate with Satan. That old deceiver soul, you have become a partaker of his faith. You go into a hell that is just fixed up and it's hot enough and terrible enough. God help me. But that's the awful rebellion and sin of Satan. It showed up in a we go into a hell that's bad enough to punish punishment in proportion to the sin of Satan. That's why men are going to spend each night. Hell has a third thing to say. Glory, hallelujah. Hell is a revelation of the glory of Calvary. that blood off a red when you look at it through the fires of hell. That cross is mighty wonderful, brother. When you see it as the only way of escape from the pits of hell. Hell reveals the glory of God's office hill from whence the blood of the eternal Son of God flows. The blood of Christ does not save from the temporal penalties of sin. We still have to die saved enough. Women have to bring children into the world with terrible pain, saved or not. Men have to earn their living by the sweat of their brow, Christians or not. But there's a lot more to it than that. And I tell you, if there is no hell, if there's no awful guilt, Then I don't see any need of Calvary. But if I'm guilty, if I'm one of the whole race of mankind that God Almighty brought into the courtroom and stopped our mouths and declared the whole world guilty of his sight, if that's so, I ain't God for Calvary. 
if there is no awful penalty to sin, then I don't see much need to get excited about whether Christ died on the cross or not. But if hell is real, I God for God. If there is no eternal death, final death, so terrible in its character that the scriptures say, no, I think it's pictorial, I don't understand that, that the heavens and the earth flee away. They're trying to hide and there's no place for them. And that men, whether they like to deny about the S.P.A. and the before God. If that soul thank God for care, there is eternal ruin of soul and body. Thank God for care. Many years ago, the first year of my experience as a professing Christian, I went to preaching. Preached my first time on the Sunday after I have hopes that the Lord saved me on a Friday. The reason the Lord didn't save me is why I was gone. It's because I was called to be a preacher. I don't really believe it's not, but you've ever called when then you're four years born. And I knew that I'd have to preach if I ever surrendered to the Lord. I don't believe you can get saved and keep your fit and face to God and say, I ain't going to do something. I don't believe that. And with me, the thing kept me out of the kingdom was the fact that I knew I was called a priest. So naturally, the day I surrendered to preach, that's the day God saved. And the day you, you throw down that spot, whatever it is in your life, you've got a no trespassing sign, sign God, keep your hands off. I come down and going to pick up for you, I think. So I went to preaching right after I got saved. And uh, in that first year, I went through Yellowstone National Park. You've been there, it's beautiful. I was alone. I know Ford, and when you get in the park, you get a guide to tell you how to get to and describes all the things you're supposed to see. And I sort of glanced through it, decided which way I wanted to go, and I was entranced by, intrigued by the description in the guidebook about the handkerchief pool. He told us about that little pool. I was thinking, yes, that's a little bigger. 
Nobody knows how deep our teeth in water. And they call it the handkerchief school because ever since white men known anything about the park, people had to make an experiment. They named it the handkerchief school. I finally got fed and I had an old dirty handkerchief I'd been using to clean the spark plugs on the old floor. You say, young, you don't remember when they had to do that, but it did. And uh, it is, oh, it is awful. Black and blue and everything else and razor. And the handkerchief pool was so named because you take a white rag, you had them white or handkerchief something nice, all dirty. And you hold it this way and let the boiling water pull it down till it burns your fingers and you pull it right up and shake it out. You'll see a miracle. And I got that old greasy black oil and grease on it. And I said, boy, I'm going to really find out if it's so. And I held that old greasy, dirty, black handkerchief. Like this, and I let the boiling water pull it down until water touched my fingers and burned them, and I pulled it up in a hurry. And then I put it out that way, and just pure as the living snow. And I stood there utterly unconscious. I was utterly unconscious. But I began to change. They told me there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from the manual veins and sinners come beneath that blood lose all their guilty things. The dying sheep rejoice to see that fountain in his days, and there have I, though vile as he, watched all my sins away. I was unconscious. I didn't know a thing. And I felt something touch my shoulder, and I looked around. A crowd of perhaps a hundred people had gathered there. And somebody said, Let, will you let us sing with your preacher? And I said, surely. And from no telling how many states in the United States, those people stood with me there. And we sang together what to me perhaps is the one great verse of song in all of Sondam. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransom church of God to save to sin no more. Hell is a revelation of the glory of Calvary.
sing it with me. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose it. I sing it till all the land
and of the Lamb, who died of blood, saved of the blood. The glory of Calvary. I want us to bow our heads and sing together as an invitation song, just one verse. I'm not going to beg anybody tonight. I'm going to go to hell. I guess you just have to go on. But my Lord died on the cross. Glory to He dealt with God's holy law. He did it for somebody. Bless God. He can interest in what he did for you on the cross. Come back, son. God bless you. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.